Hello and welcome to this episode of Inside Political Risk. My name is Chris Oates, the CEO and founder of Two Lanterns Advisory, a political risk consultancy. And I'm very happy to today be joined by Sam Wilkin, the Director of Political Risk Analytics at Willis Towers Watson, uh, one of the largest insurance firms in the world. Today we're going to be talking about coronavirus, COVID-19, and the economic and political disruptions that are emerging from the pandemic. Sam has a long background in political risk, and I think he's one of the best thinkers of political risk, uh, both where it's going and from his position at Willis Towers Watson, where it is right now and what the industry is currently concerned about. So I will go straight into the conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for joining me. Can you just give a little bit of information and background about yourself? Kind of what's your connection to political risk and how did you get into this? Sure, Chris, uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, my name's Sam Wilkin. I am the director of political risk analytics at Willis Towers Watson. And I should say first as a disclaimer that uh, the views I express today are my own views and they are in no way the views of Willis Towers Watson, its subsidiaries, employees, their friends, their friends, associates, and so on. Um, I've had about a 20-year career in political risk uh, spanning U.S. and the U.K. I should point out you're also the editor of Country and Political Risk, which is a, a handbook on it, a, you know, an academic tome on the practice of political risk. That is true. Uh, so two edited volumes, uh, Country and Political Risk uh, 1 and 2, and then a couple books, one called Risk Rules and another called History Repeating, uh, all about uh, political risk. So a, a real expert, which is why which is why I asked you uh, for this interview. So just in your kind of, in your personal opinion, not representing anyone else, how do you think the political risk industry has done uh, predicting and adapting to the COVID crisis so far? <laughs> well, uh, I'm really glad you, you asked me that question, Chris, because I think you will recall that uh, uh, Six weeks ago, we were on a uh, webinar for AIRMIC, the UK Risk Management Association, and we were asked about the political risk implications of uh, COVID-19. And I seem to recall that I said emerging markets debt crisis, and here we are, six, six weeks later, emerging markets debt crisis. And I think you said uh, China would make a lot of effort to turn the crisis into a soft power advantage. Um, and uh, they certainly have, and they certainly have done that, uh, especially a sort of almost hyperactive policy, uh, most dramatically, I think, in Europe, but uh, around the world. Um, I'm not sure how successful they've been so far, China has been so far, um, but certainly they have tried. Yeah, and I think the, the scenes of you know, a plane from China landing in Italy with uh, doctors and protective equipment is one that will be, you know, at least what they hope, what the Chinese government hopes is that that will be the new um, 
Berlin airlift in their mind. You know, it's a global soft power victory for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think they're keep going. They're going to keep doing it. Obviously, if it turns out that this was from a lab in Wuhan that because of uh, an accident got out, that's obviously going to be different. But I think, yeah, the, the initial phase is at least the intent is for a soft power uh, crisis, uh, soft power victory uh, against the crisis. So what, what do you think are some of the immediate impacts? You mentioned uh, emerging market debt. Do you think that is going to be kind of the first thing that we're going to see like beyond the public health implications? Uh, well, yeah, I see actually even before the public health implications to some degree. So uh, the first shock from actually you can sort of think of it in a series of waves so the first first wave was I mean, outside of china itself the first wave was a uh, crisis that uh, almost entirely financial in in nature it hit countries that had a lot of short-term debt that was due and were really dependent on volatile portfolio capital. You, you know, you never, <laughs> portfolio capital is a fickle friend. You just, when the crisis hits, you never want to be uh, relying on that kind of, because uh, it just leaves immediately. And so it was Ecuador and Zambia. Both of those countries, of course, are major com commodity exporters, commodity markets. That was also a major indirect uh, impact, uh, tourism flows drying up, remittance income drying up from migrant uh, workers, remitting income home. Those were those were initial indirect. Even before the virus arrived in many countries, those were major indirect impacts that caused a severe economic shock. But what uh, Ecuador and Zambia, I think, became the first countries to notify that they would be unable to pay their debts. And that was almost purely, certainly they are commodity exporters, but mainly that was just, they just couldn't get the money. It was a liquidity problem first. And, uh, you know, this this shock, the second wave, indirect wave, is uh, from the other issues I mentioned, impacts on tourism, impact on remittances, impacted on commodities. Uh, and then there's a third indirect or direct, more direct wave, and that is as the emerging world has gone into lockdown, usually a couple weeks behind. Actually, there's still some countries that haven't yet gone into lockdown. I think Belarus, um, Brazil famously kind of going back and forth on policy, but Belarus is probably the most extreme or maybe Turkmenistan. Uh, so they, they, some, so that, that direct impact is still very, very new, almost not even felt yet. The kind of shock that we've been dealing with now with massive unemployment and the retail sector shutting down, that, that w wave of economic implications is only just now beginning to reach emerging markets. What we've seen so far is, by and large, this indirect shock, but that has already provoked a, a very obvious emerging markets debt crisis. I, b I believe today the G20 admirably announced that to avoid uh, just a mass debt default situation, that they would uh, put a six-month moratorium on, on the debt payments of about 75 countries, and, and that should, you know, this kind of a this kind of a major debt crisis where 70 countries default at the same time is a mess, and it also threatens the stability of you know financial institutions who've lent a lot or invested a lot in these countries, uh, and it, it, you know. The, I think the other idea is, 
well, let's impose this debt moratorium so that these countries, they can uh, still have money to invest in medical care and and buying medicine and, and these kind of crucial humanitarian needs as the economic shock and the crisis continues. So it kind of reminds me of that old um, saying, although slightly adapted, if one country has a debt default, the country's in problem. If 70 countries have debt defaults, then it's the rest of the global financial system that has a problem. Yes, that's right. Right. If you owe the bank uh, $10 million, it's just you. But So that, that was the um, uh, that, that's, that's certainly the, the flavor of the situation. It, it is, as, as ever, uh, assistance for financial institutions while also doing the right thing in assisting emerging uh, emerging market economies. And are there um, are there particular types of emerging markets that you're seeing this hit more or less? Is it in a particular region? Is it a particular exposure? I could imagine that any country relying on a high oil price has taken a huge hit to their budget. But are there any other trends that you're seeing out there? Well, we've done a lot of analysis of this, as you can imagine. And the and there are a lot of organizations out there that have. I've seen indices from Oxford Economics looking into this, looking at this on the U.S. state level, uh, seen uh, some work from IHS uh, Global Insight. So there's certainly a lot of analysis out there. We, we've been doing our own, own analysis. Uh, and what we largely see, it, it's the countries that are, that are getting the bailouts, usually the world's poorest and most indebted countries that are expected to be hit, also commodity exporters, of course. It's actually good for commodity importers, uh, the Turkey being a prime example, uh, that, that they, they have this commodity price decline the you know if you look at the what the thing the thing to keep in mind is that the net though the countries that are really hit hard by the direct wave of the crisis may be very different from the countries that have been hit hard so far that what's happened now may be a very poor predictor of what happens next and and that's because these direct impacts are quite different from the indirect impacts. Uh, direct impacts, impacts, you're starting to look at things like, well, how uh, how effective is the healthcare system? Uh, how urbanized is the population? How big is retail in the economy? Uh, how many people are over 65, which is kind of where you start to get into the real danger zone in terms of the overwhelming the healthcare system with people who need to be on ventilators for a very long time. So that is uh, and looking at that actually you may see some unexpected regions one that we constantly comes up when we do this kind of analysis is eastern europe actually which uh, so far hasn't been hit too hard but uh, but has uh, aging populations similar to the hardest hit countries like italy and spain and a significantly weaker healthcare system than italy or spain so you you could begin to see countries that aren't really in the spotlight now begin to develop more difficulties as time goes on. And then the indirect impacts are those that, as you mentioned, for whatever reason, they're commodity exporters. They rely a lot on international trade and tourism. They're the ones that get hit as the economy suffers. So kind of in, at a U.S. state level, New York is the biggest epicenter for the direct impact. But Alaska, even if there weren't a single COVID case there, would be 
hit because the oil price crash, and that's most of Alaska's economy, I think. I'm afraid that's uh, right. I mean, the the everyone's really worried, of course, South Dakota, where I grew up, uh, about shale, uh, North Dakota, too. Uh, you know, the, these countries, there, there will be a big variance in terms of the state-by-state impact of the of this situation. And that, it's really interesting because we, you know, we don't often think of states and governors of having a lot of power in the country, you know, given that MSNBC has probably 15 shows a day that are based just on Washington, and then the rest is probably pharmaceutical ads. But what we've really, we've really seen that how a state acts um, shapes their COVID response, and, and I'm guessing is going to shape their economic uh, response as we come out of this. Well, that'll be interesting. Uh, so it, uh, right now, for instance, uh, Italy and Japan uh, are two of the oldest populations on Earth, but Italy has been much, much more impacted than Japan. I, I was in Japan in February, and the Japanese situation has been carrying on at a kind of slow burn Ever since, I guess, January, uh, certainly February, the cruise ship and everything. and But the, the response in terms of case tracking and everything has so far been much more successful in Japan in terms of keeping the level of cases down. Apparently, of course, there's a lot of controversy over testing and lack of testing and, and that, kind of, that kind of thing. And so it's certainly tempting to conclude that your sort of – your government's response – is a really big determinant of how much you'll suffer. But you do wonder if over the long term, the lockdown in Italy and Japan might have to be equally as long and that some of that early benefit will start to wear off, you know, because uh, because those fundamental vulnerabilities in terms of having a very uh, aging population are still there in both countries, no matter how well or how poorly <laughs> you, you get that initial response. Yeah, and I think Singapore is a really interesting case for this because we first thought that it was one of those examples of, you know, lockdown really quickly, do a lot of testing and it works. And we're now seeing kind of a, a new rise in cases and there's the concern that while they did lockdown and it's true that at the beginning they prevented the curve from becoming mm. too steep. They can't prevent. Um, they can't prevent it forever. As long as it's somewhere in the world, there's the chance of getting reinfected and having to lock down again. So yeah, it, I think that's one of the things that really jumps out to me. Trying to do, um, trying to deal with this crisis in anal- from an analytical point of view, is there's so much we don't know. Like I remember um, one of the when I, I first started uh, as a political risk analyst, there was. A government shutdown in the United States and people were asking, like, what's going to happen to it? When's it going to end? And at the very least, I had previous government shutdowns that I could look to. And the situation was slightly different. Um, But I could look and I could say, well, this is what usually happens. This is what we think is going to happen. But right here, we have this big variable in the middle, which is like, how uh, how much does COVID infect? How big is the damage? How can it be prevented? And that's still a pretty big question mark relative, on a relative basis compared to, to past uh, crises that the world has dealt with. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, I, you know, the, so we, we've talked about the, the kind of economic shock, which is to a degree forecastable. Uh, certainly, 
you know, I mentioned there are some uncertainties, such as like how the effectiveness of a government response will, over the long term, matter or or matter less as the the constant need to battle the disease carries on. Uh, one just presumes that uh, lockdown will need to be quite severe in Japan for a very long time, even if they dealt with it initially quite well. You know, what's the sort of second order implications uh, in terms of political the political aftershock, there almost certainly will be a tremendous political aftershock, both domestically and internationally. But we know very little about this political aftershock at the moment. Yeah, it's I, I the you know the example from an economic point of view is the 2008 financial crisis and then ensuing recession. And one thing that I found very interesting about that is pretty much every incumbent party lost the next election. Didn't matter if they were a left-wing party or a right-wing party, if you were in power during the financial crisis um, or you know during the, the bulk of that recession, you lost power. And, uh, the Tea Party wave of 2010, the French elections, the UK elections. But right now we're seeing a rally round the flag effect with a number of leaders. So yep. there's a question of, is this, a, uh, is this another recession that hurts incumbents? Or is this a particular type of crisis that helps incumbents? And I think, at least for the United States, my perspective is that the rally round the flag, the flag effect is waning for the president, and that could be because of negative partisanship, but the economic impact will is still to be felt in the polls. So we're not going to see the, the polling, a political polling impact from the recession for maybe another month or two as it kind of filters through to the population. Um, are, is that something that you're tracking and trying to think about how political instability will will go up if people start blaming their governments? Uh, so we haven't really started. Uh, we haven't really started. We, we're sort of at the moment we're grappling with what the potential political implications will be. We, we've certainly got some early issues that have emerged. So one of them is that there have been. Uh, there's been violence triggered by lockdowns there and uh, mostly in Africa, Kenya, uh, actually in South Africa, there were, I think, more people in early April, more people had been killed by police efforts to enforce the lockdown than had been killed by the virus. Uh, there had been violence in, in China and India as a result of efforts to enforce lockdowns and, and actually efforts to reimpose lockdowns that had been lifted. So the, this this is a, a flashpoint, although by and large, I would say mass unrest has declined tremendously because people are worried about being infected. Yeah. But uh, but there have you have seen these flashpoints of violence. The other big political risk thing that we've seen so far is all of these export restrictions. I think it was more than 40 countries, maybe more than 50 countries now that impose these restrictions on exports of medical supplies, um, the diversion of medical supplies from foreign countries to the U U.S., bans on drugs. We've also now started to see this spread into food uh, with uh, quotas being imposed by Russia on wheat exports, uh, some stockpiling of uh, critical grain supplies, uh, Egypt, Philippines, other countries. So 
and you know, we all know what happens when you start stockpiling things, when you start yeah. panic buying things. So you create a shortage when there isn't, doesn't really need to be a shortage. So, but the, this is, uh, there have been hints of what might also happen. Uh, a lot of noise around anti-democratic opportunism, opportunism, particularly in Hungary, uh, a lot of concern about the incapacitation of leadership, not just Boris Johnson, um, there, uh, you know, in countries, uh, the case in Burkina Faso, where about uh, six government ministers, I think maybe now seven, had tested b- positive. And this is a country that um, doesn't have the kind of institutions that the UK does, doesn't, uh, has some severe security challenges. And, you know, if you have a really contested political environment, uh, even potentially contested, uh, violently contested in some cases, then and then you have the government becoming incapacitated, uh, then that can create a lot of uh, problems potentially. But this it's so early days on the, the political, domestic political implications of these things in terms of political instability that uh, we really just don't, uh, we don't know. We're, we're actually just sort of in the process of developing a few scenarios that look at the possible, possible outcomes. Yeah, that's one of the things that I'm, I, I know everyone is talking about how time seems kind of meaningless now, but especially when it comes to political risk, you know, we're, I'm used to when whenever we would get a commission for a report on something, it would be okay, have it done in three months. And we would look for five years out. And it feels like now, if you do anything that's longer than two weeks, you're, you could be out of date. I mean, it's been, what, uh, four to five weeks since the U.S. kind of like fully went into crisis mode when the NBA shut down on the same night that the president gave a Oval Office address. So in four or five weeks, we've gone from you know very little to all of this. And... And yeah, you're right. We're basically still grappling with the public health implications, the immediate economic implications. And it's like you're telling political risk analysts, oh, yeah, by the way, some countries may uh, have their politics collapse as well. You know, do all of this and try to still get uh, eight hours of sleep in a, a day <laughs> and maybe teach and maybe teach your kids uh, school because they're home right now. So just it it actually it reminds me of um, when I spoke to Kerry Boyd Anderson uh, about how it was like to cover the Arab Spring. The thing that she stressed was that every single day felt like there was a fire hose of news. There was like three months of news happening every day. And she was just trying to rush to keep up with it. And it it does feel a bit like that. Every single country is having something happen to it on a daily basis. And the people who are supposed to analyze it are are you know just trying to tackle one problem at a time uh yes i i mean i think that's that's really true and it's it's so hard i think also because it's it impacts you personally that that was this was the uh this was a when we we were asked in this airmic webinar may we kind of got the geopolitical implications right but the the fact that we would be going into lockdown I didn't see that, <laughs> you know, and just the implication of, of how it would affect everyone's lives that I was totally surprised by. So, so it really is, uh, it really is tricky. I, I feel like in some ways we should cut our leaders a little bit of slack because yes, the international response to all this has been appalling in many ways, but uh, also people are afraid, uh, including presumably even politicians 
patients who have feelings, allegedly. And uh, so, you know, part of that that poor response may have to do with people just being personally very emotional about all of this and uh, and that making it very difficult to make judgments that are in the public interest or the global interest. And I think what we're also seeing is the the incentives for politicians are now very apparent. You know, if you're a national politician, it is your country that elects you and it's your country that judges you. So we've seen this these, you know, nationalist responses. That's something that's jumped out at me is the lack of global coordination. Uh, because, you know, it seems as if in every crisis in the past, there would be some sort of global movement, even if it didn't solve the problem. You know, during the financial crisis, it was at the G7 or the G8 back then. And, and the G20 and during um, SARS and H1N1, it was a lot of international coordination. And it could be just the leaders who are in charge right now doing that. But it also feels like it could be because you have to do a national lockdown because that's what you have power over. Everyone's just so focused on the minute to minute demands on their time from their own constituents that they're not they're not looking um, abroad for help or uh, offering help. Yeah, absolutely. And you could you can see it going in very different ways because after that initial knee-jerk national response, there there are now signs of cooperation. I just mentioned today this G20 agreement on debt relief for emerging economies that that are that are hit really hard. You know, there uh, you can sort of see. Uh, one possible future in which the EU really comes into its own and you get the proper EU budget and you get mutualized debt and EU, especially the Eurozone, works out all of these problems that have bedeviled it for the past few years, well, decades now, but especially since the global financial crisis and the Eurozone debt crisis. You can see all these problems. You could see a rediscovery of faith in technocrats as technocrats and trained experts kind of see us through this crisis. So you can see organizations organizations like the G20, which just kind of started to come into their own after the global financial crisis, really coming in more strongly. So you can see that possible future. You can also see a possible future where everything becomes much more nationalist. There's a lot of government intervention, and that leads to a lot more economic nationalism, where populists populists gain tremendously as a result of this crisis, where there's a continued lack of trust in government that's been a big trend. That trend continues. You can certainly see that possible future as well. I, I think you know the, the what actually happens probably a mix of those two things. And, and I don't. I think when we you look back on it in the distant future, it will seem preordained. <laughs> whatever one of those outcomes uh, comes about, but at, at the moment, I don't think it is preordained. I think it really could go either of those directions, and it's kind of a, it's kind of up to us now which direction it does go, and and will take some. Oh, well, it's going to be a huge challenge uh, to rise to the occasion and we'll take it in whichever direction you see fit. And where, how far out is your time horizon at the moment? Are you seeing disruptions um, 
to the markets or to your products for the next year? Or are people who are getting five-year bonds also getting worried? Is it 10-year bonds? Kind of, is there, because I know that everyone, as we said, is almost living day to day and just looking for the next week or month or until the summer. But are people who are planning for political risk products and buying insurance, are they starting to get worried much further out because of, as you said, we don't know what the world is going to look like in three years or five years? Well, okay. So you, you mentioned political risk insurance. So that's, that's my, these days, my, my, my day-to-day job mostly is dealing with political risk insurance, evaluating financial impacts of political events and uh, looking, looking at uh, the kind of losses that could occur from political risk for for corporations, and I would say that you know typically political risk is. Yeah, I don't want to get too much into the insurance world on you, but uh, political risk is a type of insurance that's an optional kind of cover. Many types of insurance cover that companies buy are mandatory. This one is optional, and so in the main. Uh, if I look at the brokers who I work with on a day-to-day basis, they are you know, usually trying to convince companies that they that they're running some type of risk, and that's that's the thing. Trying to convince them, yeah, you need to spend the extra money uh, to to cover off this type of risk. That is really changing rapidly. It still exists to some extent, but what's really switching now is it's switching to the opposite side of the coin, where now. The problem is that the companies know <laughs> this is a major risk. Everyone can see the disruption, especially the economic disruption, which, as I said, largely forecastable. The political disruption, really much more unknown, but also you can you can easily imagine really negative scenarios, as I as, as, as I mentioned. And so now you're in the opposite, suddenly in the opposite position where the companies can all see the risk, and now it's the insurance. Uh, underwriters, the uh, insurance carriers, who are now getting shy about underwriting this kind of insurance. So suddenly, I think what's happening in my world, although this is is messy and it's not as clear cut as I've sort of made it sound, uh, it, you know, and it varies from underwriter to underwriter. So far, it's still very early days, and it is changing on a day to day basis, as you said. But we we are under, we're going through this switch from one equilibrium to another. <laughs> I don't know if it's an equilibrium or not. I just said that said that to make me sound cool. The um, uh, we were going from one world to another world where you you were in this world of uh, underwriters who were eager to underwrite things and and uh, and companies that were a little reluctant to insure to a world where companies really want to insure and underwriters are reluctant to underwrite. So it's been uh, uh, fascinating to see this kind of shift and, of course, nerve-wracking as well. I I remember uh, speaking to, I guess, one of your competitors in the insurance world, and he mentioned that usually political risk is a good business to be in because it so rarely happens. It's so rare that the the whole world collapses at once. You can usually hedge stuff or it's, you know, people are more worried than they need to be. And now we're, we're definitely in the opposite case where everything could happen at once. And from the little I know about the insurance world, that's the bad situation for the insurer is when all of the claims start coming in at the same time. Yeah, that's right. So it's the, uh, you know, typically uh, political risk insurance. This is, you know, I'm not a broker, so this is 
what I hear, uh, political risk insurance is attractive to insurance companies because it's not correlated with anything else. You can have lots of losses from other types of windstorm or um, what have you, and it's totally unrelated. <laughs> Winds are unrelated to political risk. And so even most economic uh, losses, you know, credit trade credit losses are unrelated to political risk. But uh, now that's changing, and all these things, businesses are being disrupted, um, and you're having all sorts of health uh, issues, all types of insurance that you get that aren't related to each other are now suddenly correlated. And that uh, is, it's a real headache for the insurance and the real reinsurance world. Obviously, we're not looking into a crystal ball, but and we know the different scenarios. But if we had to look back in a year, let's say we fast forwarded a year, what do you think looking back would be the things that will jump out to people? What do you think might happen over the next year that we're definitely going to remember? Um, and I know this is kind of a, a forecasting game, and and I'm not going to hold you to it in a year if it doesn't come true. But is there something that you think? other people aren't talking about that you have your mind on because you think it is going to be important? You know, what I I think in a year uh, or, or two, when you we look back on this, as I said before, it's going to look like the, the outcome was preordained. It's going to look like, well, we were always, this was always going to be the shock that finally put the nail in globalization. Or it's going to look like, well, this was always going to be the shock that reminded the world that we need technocrats and we need experts and we need international institutions. Um, you know, the, the obviously it's great shocks like this that lead to the setup of major institutions like World War II leading to the IMF and the World Bank and the UN. And you know, which way it goes, that, that I can't say. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, you know, and I think it is, it's und- it's not determined at this point. Like, I, I think it really could go either way. And uh, decisions that we kind of make now uh, will determine which way that it goes. I don't think it is set in stone by by any means. So I, I think it's, it is absolutely, absolutely up in the But I think that you are absolutely correct in your forecast that there will be a lot of people who claim that they were right the whole time. Yeah, and claim that it was inevitable, which it, 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 you know, and certainly you'll be able to pick out the the forces that pushed in one way or the other, but I don't think it is inevitable. Yeah, well, I mean, I know that the 2016 election is almost like a touchstone for the forecasting world. Everything can be drawn back to it, but it reminds me of the aftermath of 2016. All these people saying, oh, this is why I always knew Trump was going to win. This is why I always knew Trump was going to win. And if we're in a polite setting, I don't say this, but I'm always tempted to say, oh, you knew that Jim Comey was going to write a letter two weeks before the election. Because (laughs) if that was the thing that would tip the scale, that was the thing that, you know, pushed those margins in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, you had no way of knowing that that was going to happen. You might think it's possible. You might put a probability on it, but you didn't know it was going to happen. And yet there are always going to be people who, no matter what happens, will say, oh, I saw this coming. Absolutely. And and also, uh, because everything gets refracted through the lens of U.S. politics, I think people put it, are putting, uh, to a degree, too much weight on the impact of the outcome of this election. I think there's 
certainly scenarios one can easily imagine where the U.S. is ineffective as a global actor, and that doesn't have much to do with who's in power. It has more to do with uh, the polarization, uh, with a lack of trust in government, uh, with the, the fact that the U.S. has declined in relative terms compared to uh, other countries. So, yeah, I, I think in a, in a sense, uh, there's too much emphasis put on the election and, and how that will shape the, the world outcome. Uh, the, the outcome. I think there's a, a lot of other factors that are combined more important. Okay, so thanks so much for that, Sam. That's been really fascinating to have a look of how you, a professional and experienced political risk analyst are seeing what I think we can say is the most disruptive political risk environment we've probably seen in 30 years, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, certainly, uh, certainly one with a lot of twists. Yes. So thank you so much for, for that. And how can people get in touch with either you or Willis Towers Watson to buy more political risk insurance? <laughs> well, I think we've got a lovely website. Uh, look at it. And you can also actually look at the um, the Willis Towers Watson uh, COVID-19 resource page, which contains a lot of resources, not just on political risk and geopolitical implications, but also on managing employee health, uh, well-being, all sorts of other insurance market implications, and so on. So lots of material there on all aspects of the crisis and its impact on companies. Well, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. So thanks again to Sam for speaking to me. There are a couple points that I think were so important I wanna, I wanna draw out again and flag. The first one is how when I talked about these kind of second order long-term implications of COVID-19, Sam pointed out that those were actually happening right away and that the financial implications of a pandemic were almost immediate and harsh for many countries. I'm reminded of the episode on the Arab Spring when I was talking with a former Middle East analyst about how she had to kind of mentally keep in her mind where different countries were on the path of uh, protest to political unrest to perhaps regime change in the Middle East. For COVID-19, I think there's a sense that the journey of this political risk episode is public health crisis to economic crisis through reduced demand and stay-at-home orders to political crisis. But not all countries are on that same path. For some, as Sam mentioned, I believe it was Ecuador and Zambia, it was a financial hit almost immediately because of their uh, position in the global market. For others like Hungary, the politics have really jumped to the fore, perhaps even before the public health crisis hits, which it may still, as Sam mentioned, Eastern Europe is relatively highly exposed to a, a pandemic. The second point is how Sam mentioned that they almost haven't had a chance to think about those long-term political implications yet. When we think about where the world might be in a year or five years, it's not just that it's highly uncertain, it's that the analysts working on this issue have far more questions to answer before they even get there. They need to right now be thinking, where is the virus hitting? Where are the hotspots? What does that mean? What do the lockdown orders mean? When will the lockdown orders end? What's the drop in demand for the second quarter? What does it mean for the third quarter? And there's only so many hours in a day that they can address those questions. So just like the Arab Spring episode, it's a reminder that political risk analysts or, or those who are in jobs that we're supposed to be studying are people with only so many hours of the day. And there's probably a lot more to a story than we're able to get to it in any one day like this. That doesn't mean our analysis is wrong or that it's necessarily incomplete. 
it means that we've had to prioritize. And if those aren't your priorities, if you're more concerned about the budget in California or democracy in Hungary, you may have to do some of that analysis on your own. Or obviously call someone who's a political risk consultant and commission that work because it might not be available just from the media. So again, once again, thanks to Sam. Uh, it is an illuminating update for where we are right now in the middle of April. I'm guessing we might be somewhere different in a month or two months or three months, but that is the nature of this crisis that it is constantly changing. So once again, if you have any political risk needs, of course, you can contact Two Lanterns Advisory. The website is twolanterns.co, T-W-O-L-A-N-T-E-R-N-S.co. Thanks for listening. See you next time.